Hey guys, welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. March Madness is here, and to help you with your bracket, make sure you listen to One Shiny Podcast with Mark Titus and Tate Frazier. Also, be sure to check out the Ringer's YouTube channel to watch Tate and Titus build their bracket and break down every matchup on their selection show, as well as Roger Sherman, who offers his three Cinderella picks for the NCAA tournament. You can find those at youtube.com slash the ringer. Welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is the Corner 3. My name's Kevin O'Connor and over in Los Angeles, it's Ringer Associate Editor Danny Chow. Missing you, buddy. Yeah, man. I'm missing being in California. Looking forward to being back. I'm home in Massachusetts right now, but I am happy to have back in Dallas from his one-week hiatus. It's Ringer staff writer Jonathan Charks. What's up, guys? Sorry to talk March Madness. We're recording us during the Cincinnati-Iowa games. We can't have any Jaron Cumberland takes. That's how deep we're going to get. <laughs> yeah, this will be a deep podcast. It's going to be a mostly draft class edition of the Corner 3, though at the end of the podcast, we will be discussing the Western Conference playoffs because there's four teams with the same record entering the same day. It'll be a wild end of the season in the NBA. But first... We're going to talk about John Morant. He was a star of Thursday's NCAA tournament games. Uh, John Morant is the top point guard prospect in the 2019 draft. He dominated Murray State's 83 to 64 victory over Marquette by taking only nine shots. He had 17 points, 16 assists, 11 rebounds, and he did have seven turnovers over his 39 minutes. But Danny, you published an article yesterday where you asked, well, how will John Morant fare under the brightest lights of his career? And Thursday night, he clearly passed his first test under those bright lights. But did we learn anything new about John Morant? I think in general, for the general public who have just kind of watched John Morant kind of off in the periphery, you know, Sports Center highlights, these massive dunks, these incredibly athletic plays, they basically just realized that this guy's a legit point guard. He's like, you know, he puts so much zip on his passes. He has touch on his passes. You know, he commands the floor. He commands a certain presence. And we're not just talking about, you know, a guy who has to be built into a point guard. We're talking about a point guard who happens to be very, very athletic. Yeah, I, I think with Ja, Charles Barkley said it maybe best at halftime. He, he said a lot of players shoot themselves into games. Ja seemed to pass himself into that game. He He's an elite passer at the college level. And granted, he had seven turnovers. The 16 assists that he had, Charks, he had some just ridiculous off the dribble assist or accurate passes off the dribble that not a lot of point guards seem to have the ability to have. Yeah, he was just having fun out there. That was kind of like, I guess that's obvious, but... It was like watching a guy in total command. So he got in that game. He saw Marquette. He took like two possessions. Oh, I can turn whatever I want. These guys can't guard me. They're basically like Swiss cheese on defense. I'll go wherever I want. <laughs> and like he made, he has a lot of turnovers, but I think that's his thing all year is like when he knows he has a game in hand, like yeah, I think he averages like 10 or 11 assists and like five turnovers. Like he'll make the crazy pass because he can do it because why not at that level? Just said after the game, like he he rated his performance a three point five out of five, uh, because he had those two ter- too many turnovers, and a couple of them were because his teammates teammates weren't ready for passes. Uh, some of them were because he was being a careless. He had a behind the back pass that was very unnecessary. But for the most part, like I think watching Ja Morant reminds me so much of Trey Young last year at Oklahoma. They're they're different style players with their scoring styles, but Trey Young also displayed that 
ability just to see the floor at a high level and pass guys open off the dribble. Like I, I think that that's an elite ability for John Morant, where a lot of the talk will be about his athleticism, the, the big dunk he had, or the step back three that he had, but the passing is his best skill, and that's going to keep him on the floor early in his career. Yeah, I think well, the step back three was kind of what stood out to me when that I feel like in that game. He was very comfortable. And as he was bringing, like Marquette really couldn't ball, ball hawk him too much. He kind of got wherever he wanted to go on the floor. And he was just comfortably making threes. And like, I think that's the difference between him and Trey Young, obviously. And I think for Ja, that's the big thing going forward. Given his like slider frame, is he's got to become a really, really good three-point shooter. And if he can make those shots consistently, there's no sign how good he can be. Right. And just watching the game yesterday and, and the, the kinds of passes he was making, this is kind of like, a sort of deep cut for for our generation, but I was kind of reminded of Rod Strickland, um, like a really nice, very way to stay on brand, Danny. Nineties like, basketball, yeah, players. just a historically like underrated point guard who, like, if you watch him play, he kind of looks a bit more like Kyrie. But the types of passes that he made, like, I think John Morant, that's kind of like the player he can be at the next level. I'm, you know, I'm not completely sold on his kind of athleticism in tight quarters. I still want to see him, you know, against, you know, this this Florida State defense, which is enormous and athletic, and they can kind of shrink the floor and, you know, force him to to make plays in tight spaces, whereas Marquette, he was basically just running wild, you know? To your point about this Florida State defense that he'll face on Saturday, I, I don't think we necessarily learned anything new about Morant in yesterday's game. It, it was just him kind of bursting out onto the scene for people right. that are watching, you know, watching these draft prospects or watching college basketball for the first time all year. And that's cool, right? I think that it's better. Li- it's There's never uh, a bad time to, to, to realize that there's going to be another great point guard coming into the league. Um, but with Ja, I, th- I do think, like you said, Charks earlier, the scoring ability is going to be what makes him either just a good point guard or a great point guard because he did have that step back three and that showed what he could be, but he still has a really slow shooting release and transitioning into his shot off the dribble isn't a strength of his. So I think in this matchup against Florida State, he's probably going to have to get buckets. He's They're probably not going to win that game with him shooting only nine shots. Uh, and with John Morant, that's going to be the question moving forward. So with him... Do you think right now at this stage, John, does he need to make changes to his mechanics or is it more or less just proving that he can do it? Because oftentimes guys don't make these tweaks to their mechanics. I mean, it's hard to say because he really hasn't faced that much high level competition this year. He's mostly had his way against like substandard players. So it'll be really fun to watch this Florida State game. And I think for those who watch college basketball, like Marquette and Florida State are kind of like diametrically opposed teams. So Marquette... They pretty much recruit only shooters. They're not terribly athletic. They don't play much defense. Florida State's the exact opposite. All Leonard Hamilton does is recruit tall, athletic, fast players. They aren't always very skilled, but every guy on his team has usually got NBA size, NBA athletic ability. And a lot of times, their players are bigger than NBA players because they're not that skilled. They're just like freakishly large and athletic. So I'm looking at their lineup. They go like 6'4", 6'5", 6'7", 6'8", 7'4". Like, this team is freaking huge. So it'll be fun to watch Ja against like, guys with his athletic ability. I think that's something I'm really curious to see what it's going to look like. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this lineup and like the average height is like 6'8", and the average weight is like 225. <laughs> like, oh yeah, they got a 6'8", 260 like power forward. It's incredible. 
there's a number of different guys that Jaws probably gonna have to score against. Terrence Mann, their senior uh, star of the team. Uh, there's going to be a handful of different matchups that Jaws going to have to prove himself against. And I, I think that's primarily the main thing I'm looking for is how, how does he how does he adapt when he's facing these multi- different types of players, uh, especially someone like Terrence Mann. Yeah, and I think if you look at it, so his scoring at the rim numbers aren't as great as you'd expect for a guy that's athletic ability. So that'll be interesting to watch too. Yeah, I, I just I the comparisons to you know John Wall and Russell Westbrook feel a little overblown in that sense because he just doesn't really have the physical makeup. Like he's just he's a he's kind of a, a skinnier, leaner frame, and so I don't know if he's necessarily going to be be able to bulk up like those two. And also, like look, Russ is at the rim numbers aren't very good either. And so it's not always, you know, about athleticism. And a lot of it is drawing fouls too, right? Yeah. So with James Harden, part of what makes him an elite finisher is ability to draw, to absorb contact, finish through contact, or just draw fouls. Uh, And like, that's the one separator between someone like him and Kyrie Irving. So if you're looking purely at field goal percentage at the rim, that is not always the greatest indicator of what a guy's true ability is. It should be like true shot attempts near the rim, which it would include drawing fouls. And that's where John Morant over the course of time, I think with his lean frame is going to have to a learn how to finish you know with finesse with crafty offhand finishes and he can finish with both hands but continuing to master that skill but also as he's gets stronger just the ability to absorb contact because as you said danny like he is an explosive leaper off two feet but not yet is he that guy in traffic all the time he's going to dunk over guys right yeah that's the thing that i'm most interested in because i feel like that is, you know, it's it's definitely more of a functional athleticism at the next level. Like, sure, anyone can, you know, run down the court and jump off two feet and uh, dunk at the NBA level. Like, Derek Williams was a great example. He looked like, you know, LeBron on certain, you know, lob attempts, but you put him in, <laughs> you know, you put him in, in traffic and he looks like a, you know, a baby deer. And so that's kind of a, a, a separator in terms of, uh, you know, true elite athleticism in my in my view. And too, like, as you were saying, Danny, he's built more like De'Aaron Fox. But right. I don't think he has Fox's like pure top end speed. Like he's probably like a, maybe like 90% of Fox's speed or 85%. And I think too, we'll see in this game is like his defense. He doesn't play much defense. And he might no. have to in this one. And I want to see if Florida tries to attack him on defense. I'd be curious to see that because they have the guards to really go at him in terms of size at least. It's like with Morant, he's, probably going to end up depending on what what the draft order is the second or third player taking this draft and I like him a lot as a prospect I, I think he's gonna be a really good point guard he's, he's a great prospect um, but I'm not sure he'll be a great player w- without the defense as you said Charles he's he does not he's not very active on the end of the floor he's hidden uh, he was not always a primary defender against Marcus Howard in Thursday's game like you would have liked to have seen in that matchup but it's understandable why because he's so lean uh, because you need, he needs to st- uh, save energy for the offensive end of the floor but he will have to defend on Saturday but still Still, besides that, it gets back to that jumper. And um, I think that is going to be the great separator in what he is. Like, without a jumper, let's say he's an average shooter as he has been in his two years. What is his floor and ceiling with that average shot, Sharks? I mean, without a great jumper, is he Jeff Teague? Like, maybe a better passing Jeff Teague? Hmm. Ooh. I mean, Jeff Teague was a good player a long time. A good player. Started at a 61 team, went to conference finals a few times. Good good career. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really hard to come up with a comparison for him. I, I've I've been 
it took me a really long time to even get to the whole Rod Strickland thing, but that was even just more looking at his passing ability. There just aren't that many point guards you can think of with his build who have gone on to become like huge success stories. When the ones who are tend to be elite shooters. Right. I think the, 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 we, in the NBA draft guide, we have the skinny John Wall comparison. I think John Wall was not nearly as good of a passer as Morant is right now coming out of college. Uh, I, I think that comparison for what Wall became is, is maybe fair what, for what Wall is today. Uh, granted, he's, he's injured, but when Wall is healthy, uh, I think maybe that's the, the lane for Morant as a really good passing point guard handful too many to turnovers uh great in the open floor but that lack of a jumper could be a limitation in half court situations because as great as john wall is the half court for him has been a hurdle in the nba especially in the playoffs for the wizards so i i still think that that's what it will be from Morant. how much does he improve his shot because right now like he had that great step back like you mentioned Chark's looking very comfortable on the floor but with his low release and the slower tra- release transitioning into the shot off the dribble I think he's a long way away from being a a reliable shooter off the dribble, which is which is really the differentiator between elite point guards, great point guards, or or good point guards and great point guards. Well, now that I think about it too, so I'm looking at like the NBA standings and the teams at the top of drafts are probably gonna need a point guard. You got the Bulls and the Suns. So that means he's likely gonna be starting next to Levine or Devin Booker. So he better to play some defense. He's starting next to those guys. <laughs> What is the best fit for him of those of those teams most likely to land? Granted, like this year's tough with the draft lottery odds for what it's worth. Like if you're looking at the different odds, like there's a 20% chance the Pelicans land a top four pick. So it could be a wide number of teams. But are there are there any best fits that stand out for you looking for John Morant? Um, I think I mean, I think Chicago makes a lot of sense in terms of, look, he's a guy who loves feeding the ball and the Bulls just have a lot of players who need the ball fed to them. I like Memphis, actually, as kind of like a, a successor. Ooh, him and DeLon Wright. Yeah. That'd be kind of interesting. <laughs> of course you bring up DeLon Wright. Of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like yeah. the Memphis fit as well. Yeah. The Memphis fit, I think New Orleans is intriguing if you're pairing him next to Drew Holiday. Uh, having him with a defensive-oriented player in the backcourt is going to be critical. I like the Lakers fit as well if they were to keep their player. Ah, that seems I don't see LeBron having much time for that. I don't either. Bringing in a rookie point guard, that's not going to happen. Theoretically, you know, <laughs> if Jeff Van Gundy got his wish, I'm just saying, if you're moving on at some point, which is not going to happen and should not happen. But if you're building a young core moving forward around LeBron uh, and for the post-LeBron era, I do think that would be an intriguing fit with Barant and Lonzo Ball. I'm not, there's just not enough shooting though. It's it's not perfect. There's, there's, I don't think there is a perfect fit with him, honestly. I will say Ch- Chicago, I mean, they won't play much defense, but that'd be a heck of a fun team to watch. If you go Ja, Levine, Porter, mm. Laurie, Carter, that's, yeah. that team's going to score a lot of points really fast. And like Levine, Laurie, and Porter all make sense off the ball. They all complement Ja really well. That's three knockdown shooters that Ja come off a Carter screen. That could be, that's something. I don't know what the ceiling on that team is, but that's a pretty high floor. Right. And I, I know that Suns fans are just like, they just want a point guard. It's been, what, like four or five years since they had like too many point guards and now they just, they're just craving for one so badly. Um, so Phoenix like is always more of a in the veteran, mix. Though. But yeah, Phoenix. no, exactly. But they're, they're looking for anything at this point. 
I think that fit works with Devin. Obviously, Devin Booker needs to improve a lot defensively, and so would Morant in that situation. But Morant is not a bad off-ball spot-up shooter, and Devin Booker, that's the one skill that has sort of been uh, put to the to the backside for him right now because of the fact that he's been asked to run so much pick and roll. But he's a great off, off-screen shooter coming off dribble handoff. So I, I would like the Morant-Booker backcourt, provided Booker is able to elevate his defense uh, when he, when there's less of a demand on him on the offensive end. Oh, man. But like Booker covering for Morant on defense just sounds like... Oh, my God. Uh, that, that, yeah, that, that, that sounds like a losing formula. Like That provides like, a lot of work in that sentence, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's, 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 and that's the thing. That's the thing, though. It's like there's no perfect fit for him. And, I mean, the team that drafts him moving forward is going to have to shuffle some pieces around, but that's okay because that's what usually happens. There's so much roster turnover in the NBA. Do, do you guys have any other thoughts on John Morant we want to hit before um, we move on? I mean, do you guys have any like serious thoughts on his defensive potential? Because like I don't, he just doesn't play any defense right now. So like I, it's so hard to kind of judge him based on what he's doing now. It's hard to see him being very switchable. Down the road, that's like the—I mean—that's like the overriding concern, even beyond everything else. He's just not that big. Even if he starts playing with more effort, uh, like like he doesn't play with much effort now. But even if that starts with the limited frame, uh, I'm not sure he's somebody who can switch either. He's somebody that teams are going to attack, right? There are plenty of other games happening yesterday as well, so we're going to hit on the prospects you need to watch on Saturday from the winning teams, and then we're going to also hit some guys that we wish we could see more of from the teams that lost yesterday. I'll start off with the guy that randomly popped up on tons of highlight reels on Twitter, on SportsCenter, House of Highlights, and everywhere else, Fletcher McGee. Fletch. From Wofford. Fletcher McGee can shoot the lights out, broke the NCAA career three-point record on Thursday. And on Saturday, he's going to have the chance to add more. But I, I am wondering, Danny, do you see McGee as an NBA prospect? And is there anything that he can show on Saturday's game against Kentucky to show that he is an NBA player? Just hit more threes, man. Just hit as many threes as you can. Like, like I, I don't, I don't know if there's anything. Like, we're not, we're not here to be talking about, you know, his his rebounding or defensive potential. Like, you have, <laughs> you have one skill, and you, you, you know, you were born with this gift. Just. Keep going. If if you can hit, you know, another game where you're like hitting like eight threes in a night, I think that that might be enough to to get him, you know, more than enough summer league looks. I mean, if if PJ's out for if PJ Washington is out for Kentucky, maybe they're vulnerable. I mean, if he can beat Kentucky, who cares? Like he's a legend for life. Yeah. I think that's why he, to me, he's a must watch on Saturday because he, whether or not he's an NBA player, just tune in to watch this guy stroke threes at the college level. It is a pleasure to watch. And if Wofford does beat Kentucky, it'll probably be because McGee put on an epic shooting display. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Danny, who do you got? Chuma Okiki from Auburn. Uh, kind of a, a, so he's a second year player, 6'8", 230-ish. You look at his his frame and you think, Oh, this guy kind of looks like Marquise Chris, but he's kind of like the inverse of Marquise Chris in that his feel for the game is really high level, but his athleticism is kind of like average to below average. He's he's more of a lateral um, guy than a vertical guy, for sure. Um, and he he's a guy who could hit threes. He's very comfortable dribbling the ball. I mean, he can really shoot it. Yeah, he could really shoot it. Um, and he just has like really quick hands. Really, He's really smart on defense. Um, he had two great games against Tennessee earlier this year. Both wins by Auburn, by the way. Um, one for the, the the SEC title. I think against Dietrich Lawson uh, of Kansas, who he's going to be facing in the second round, you're looking at 
kind of a similar type of player to Grant Williams in that he's a he's a mature body who can kind of do everything on the floor. And so I, I kind of want to see what he looks like both on offense and defense against. Uh, yeah, that'll be like a that. fun game because Candace kind of goes big and small. So they'll play Lawson at the four some. They'll move Lawson to the five and play him against wings. So we're really going to see like all types of Okiki's versatility in this one. Yeah. And would you view this player as a first round pick? He, he can definitely play himself into it. I, I think I would actually put him in the low first round for myself. Yeah. Tarks, who do you got? I'm going to shout out Nas Reed at LSU. LSU is a really fun team to watch. So I was watching that Yale game and they've got so many guys the NBA kind of tools. And I'm like, man, I said Will Wade's dropping bags. Like he's got himself a real <laughs> squad. <laughs> like if Will Wade can't coach anymore, I let him, I let him be a scout for me. He knows how to see talent. And then in this one, you've got Nas Reed. He's like 6'10", 240. He can play inside and outside. He's a pretty good shooter. He can put it on the floor. I think he's got a ton of talent. He hasn't been talked about much this year, but this could be a good game for him to really kind of shine against an NBA front court, at least in the physical ability, and uh, Jalen Smith and Bruno Fernando. I'm, I'm just really interested in Nas Reed. Um, he's kind of in the mold of what I envision the future Greg Monroe's of the league looking like. Like a guy you could bring off the bench who's a big body, but just super skilled and can kind of do a little bit of everything on the floor. But he's probably going to have some defensive limitations, but you're okay with that off the bench. Yeah, I've been thinking Bobby Portis, that kind of yeah, player. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, if, if I'm somebody listening to this podcast and I'm like, who are these guys? I've heard not, never heard of them before, but they sound like players the NBA could use today. I, I would be thinking to myself, why is everybody calling this draft class extremely weak? So... I guess I'm curious, do you guys think that maybe this draft is a bit stronger in terms of role player talent than maybe uh, the per- it's perceived as so far? I I feel like because there's so much talk about this this draft class being weak after, you know, the first two or three picks, uh teams are teams and players and fans are all kind of thinking more about, you know, role and thinking a lot more about specific talents that can be added to a team. I, I don't know if, if it's any better in terms of role-player talent. It's just, I feel like we're more cognizant of it. I think, too, people, like, we're a very star-driven culture, right? When people say a draft is strong or weak, they're just talking about the stars. That's all they're talking about. Right. And I think after Zion, there's no surefire star. But to me, like, most drafts only have two or three stars anyways. So if you already got one star locked in, if you just have one or two guys' expectations, this could end up being a strong draft. Wouldn't stun me. Definitely. And I think that also kind of circle allows us to circle back to John Morant too, where it's like the conversation is largely based off. Can this guy be a superstar? But we're like, you know, maybe he's just ends up being a slightly better version of Jeff Teague, which is fine. Like that's a, that's not a bad result at all. Uh, but I think the focus so much is on what the top guys become. But when reality, there are some strong role players to be found in the middle of the first round and into the late first round. I, I think like we talked about last week, Danny, somebody like Brandon Clark from Gonzaga. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm excited to see him at the NBA level. Uh, even somebody like Nasir Little from North Carolina, who has been horrible all season long. I think if, you, if your team drafting like 12th or 13th or if he even falls further than that, it's worth gambling on someone uh, who was an elite high school prospect. Rui Hachimura, also from Gonzaga. There's a handful of nice players that are worth gambling on in the middle of the first round, or that you can feel confident can at least be a solid role player for you. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think too, people tend to look at it more at the one and dones. So if it's a one and done class is weak, the draft considered weak. 
But that might not be the right way to look at it. There might be, as you were saying, Kevin, there might be a lot of upperclassmen who are the late bloomers yeah. who can end up becoming even better in the NBA, even if the one and done guys aren't as strong. And speaking about uh, upperclassmen, not a lot of prospects lost on Thursday's game. So um, I guess I'll pass to you, John, first. Who is one prospect on a losing team that you wish you could see more of uh, before the NBA draft combine? Yeah, this one was tough because, like, remember last year, we lost Trey Young and Aiden in day one. It was, like, crazy. You know, it was, like, wild. <laughs> was wild. And yeah. this year, I'm like, I don't know. I'm looking at these teams. Most of the guys won. The guy for me is, I, I'll go with Cody Martin. I think, so the, the Martin twins in Nevada, they had a very disappointing season. They had seen last year, a top 10 team, didn't come together. And I think Caleb's gotten most of the attention because he's a better scorer. But I've always liked Cody as a more versatile wing. He's a 6'7 guy. He was the Mountain West Defensive Player of the Year two years ago. And he's the, he runs kind of point forward for them. And this year, he's actually shot pretty well. He, that was always knocking Cody Barman. He was a bad shooter. I think that's a guy, second round, might be an interesting flyer. Right. Who do you got, Danny? I got Dylan Windler from uh, Dude, Belmont. he had a big game. He had a huge game. 35 points in a loss to Maryland. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was a heartbreaking loss at the end. Uh, but the guy can stroke the ball. I mean, he he hit, what, seven, eight threes last night. And he kind of has a little bit of everything in terms of the offensive repertoire. Like, he pulled off a, you know, pitch-perfect James Harden step-back Looking a little bit like Joe Ingles with the with the left hand and the kind of lanky, <laughs> kind of weird Lucy uh, shot form. Uh, he's he's an incredible like cutter. Knows exactly when to cut. Knows how to like use his body for you know to absorb contact and all that. Kind of get around the rim. I'm I'm really kind of fascinated by this guy. I think he has enough athleticism to make it in the NBA, and he he has all of the scoring talent. He's like six eight to two hundred pounds, just for reference. It's funny you say how good a cutter he is. Like Belmont ran their play at the end of the game from the back. Cut. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was going to work for him, but unfortunately, did not. Uh, moving on to the games happening on Friday. Uh, just we've talked a lot about Duke already. We've talked a ton about Zion, um, but Jonathan, you wrote about Duke's other guys, uh, Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett, and what we need to see from them moving forward in the tournament. They face North Dakota State. Today on Friday, what are you looking for, depending on how long uh, Duke's tournament run goes from Cam Reddish and RJ Barrett to have more confidence in them as draft prospects moving forward? Yeah, I, the kind of the thrust of the piece was like for all the talk of Zion and coming in this tournament, I feel like Zion at this point is pretty much a known commodity. We know what he's going to do. Duke knows what he's going to do. He's going to do what he, he's going to get his numbers. I think for me, if Duke's going to win a championship, it'll come into RJ and Cam. And they've been like the furthest thing from like, known commodities. They've been so up and down all season. Can those guys... I think it's just simple stuff for them. Can they take care of the basketball? Not turn it over? Can they lock in on defense? Can they make open shots? Like That's all you have to do when you're playing the guy as good as Zion. But honestly, those guys haven't done it all that well this year. So I want to see them kind of in smaller roles. Can they do the fundamental stuff to win games? How far do you think Cam Erdish could fall? Oh, man. I mean, look, if, if you're just not convinced, like if you just stripped him of all of his like archetypal NBA wing frame and all of that and you look and you just look at his numbers and you're just like we just watch him play yeah what if, yeah exactly yeah it, like he makes so many mistakes he can't finish around the rim it's it's really hard to unless you are just convinced that his body will make it so that he can translate regardless i don't know man like 
can you can you slide past 10? No way, right? I don't know. I mean, we saw Miles Turner slide to 11 a couple years ago uh, because of the the running issue that he had. That was one of the reasons why. And after an underwhelming season at Texas, uh, with that was a stronger draft though. So with Cam Reddish, I I, just, I don't see him sliding out of the top 10 unless he just totally falls flat on his face in the tournament because he hasn't been bad defensively by any means. Uh, I just I just think, to your point in the article, Charks, I would like to see him be an elite defender. It would be nice if he could hit some spot-up jumpers. It would be nice if he didn't fall <laughs> when he's driving to the rim. Like Part of me wonders with Cam Reddish, like, how much of how much is like the, the draft Twitter sphere and everybody else, everything else, hanging on to him as a, as a top five prospect. How much does that have to do with the fact that he just entered college as a top prospect instead of viewing him for what he is in this 30 game sample? Or is it that like maybe this 33 game sample at Duke, it's, is this being weighed too much against what he did in high school, which was really, really high level basketball as a scorer. Here's the thing. I think with cam, I could see his stock falling for now after a bad tournament. Like in my mind, I'm already seeing some game where he has like four fouls and offensive fouls plays like 15 minutes and then gets like three points and they lose. That's what I'm seeing in my mind right now. <laughs> but I feel like when he gets to those workouts, he gets in your gym and you watch him. Sh- like he's a guy, if you watch him shoot in warmups, it's like, my God, this man is incredible. And like, if he gets in the gym, hits like a bunch of threes, it's moving really well. I can just see a GM talking themselves into Cam Reddish after they work him out. I could see him really moving his stock back up after a bad tournament. Okay. At all. So right at, so right when you were saying all of that, I have a perfect comparison for Cam Reddish. Contavious Caldwell Pope. Yep, could be. Well, he's so, way bigger though. Yeah, That's he's way bigger. Cam. But what you what you just described, I remember watching Contavious Caldwell Pope in a, in a, I think it was a Draft Express video where all he was doing was draining threes and then they did like this uh, warm up where he, he just like ran in circles and caught alley-oops and, and just did that for like 15 straight reps. He just ran around and caught alley-oops. And I was like, this guy's my guy. Yeah, Cam's an empty gym <laughs> all-star for sure. Like, he's an empty gym superstar. <laughs> and that's the fear, right? He could be a big KCP or a big, big, big Ben McLemore where like with Ben McLemore in the 2013 draft, I really liked him. I, I viewed him as somebody who would be better with NBA spacing and over the course of time. And that McLemore his handle. KOC. Oh my goodness. It's scary. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, because this IQ issue is, yeah. <laughs> it's scary. And like, I loved Cam Reddish heading into the season. I, I I felt that Cam had a chance to be the number one prospect on my board. It's just like, there's no way, obviously with Zion emerging, but I don't think there's any chance he'll be number two at this point because so much of his game is theoretical. Uh, and, and I guess I, I just moving forward in the tournament, I don't feel even confident that he's going to show it during Duke's run. And that's just how far um, he's fallen in my eyes. But I still in this year's draft class with his age and his body and his length and the way his game looks, I still think he'll end up like in my top five. I don't see him falling much further than that because of all the tools. Yeah. Like how much did we watch Paul George as a fresh, as a freshman in, in college, you know, <laughs> like there's, a, I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying he'll be Paul George, but there's a long way for him to improve his ball handling uh, and master his shooting when he does have good tools. I'm really intrigued by the, I'll dig into my bag right now. Um, Virginia is a team that, you know, has kind of become a weird NBA factory over the past couple, you know, past, what, seven years now, uh, generating like really high level role players. And one role player that I am looking forward to, to seeing is, is Ty Jerome, uh, 6'5 combo guard, kind of a lean, lean frame. 
he's an excellent shooter. He's an excellent shooter from spot ups. He's an excellent shooter off movement. Um, and I think he has a real chance at really increasing his draft stock, maybe becoming like a late first rounder uh, against Gardner Webb, who happens to be one of the worst teams at, you know, they, they basically allow a ton of threes every single game. Uh, they allow 27 attempts per game, and Virginia's basically unbeatable when they average at least 24. And so, yeah, I think this is this could be one of those like, oh, yeah, this guy's definitely an NBA prospect. Who do you got, Sharks? All right, I'm going to give a shout out to my guy, Ethan Happ. <laughs> so what I love about the NCAA tournament or anything is like just a wide variety of players you're going to see. And I'm not sure if Ethan Happ can play in the NBA. He's a 6'10 point center, incredibly skilled, great post game, but he's not super athletic. He can't really shoot at all to save his life. But man, is he a fun player to watch. Ethan Happ, that's the kind of guy, he's a college legend. He's awesome. He's really fun to watch. I don't know what's going to happen in the NBA, but I'm going to watch him play. Yeah, you got to shout out this this comp you got, though. Yeah, he's like a weird Joakim Noah, Kyle Anderson mismatch of players. I don't even know how to describe Ethan Happ. He's just a, he's a, he's an oddball for sure. Is there any hope for him as an NBA player, Charks? I think so. I think a playmaking five off the bench, maybe. I mean, he can really pass the ball. I think there's a chance. I don't know if he can defend anyone, though, on a good team. So, so you're saying he's like a, a non-athlete Mason Plumley, Like a triple-double machine, Way theory. more skilled, though. Way more <laughs> skilled than Mason. He can dribble and stuff. I mean, he's got skills. Who, who do you think gets a triple-double first? Mason Plumley or Ethan Happ? <laughs> Ethan Happ, G League, for sure, triple-double. <laughs> Uh, in Friday's games, I'm looking forward to watching Talon Horton Tucker, a freshman guard slash wing slash big. I'm not sure exactly what he is. No idea. Um, play, playing for Iowa State against Ohio State's 27th ranked defense. Horton Tucker's interesting, guys. Uh, just turned 18 in November. Uh, doesn't really have a position. Danny, in your article on Thursday, you described him as a dream for a Mike D'Antoni. Uh, led offense. Yeah, like he, I, I can imagine him like playing five, like spot five minutes for, <laughs> for Dan Tony. Like he has what? I, he's so he's 6'4, really stout base, um, but he has like a 7'1 wingspan. And so, yeah, why not? Why not trot him out for a couple minutes, like in the PJ Tucker role? They got a fun team, man. They're a fun team to watch. I think Horton Tucker's a guy in this year's draft class where with so much uncertainty, especially in the lottery, I do wonder if in workouts, he's somebody that could rise where in college shot selection is definitely an issue for him. He throws up far too many wild floaters and off balance layups around the rim. His decision making isn't great, but I do wonder if in workouts, he's somebody that can show that he's a really, really good shooter off the catch. He could show an improved shot off, off the dribble. And maybe, you know, when he's training for the draft, his athleticism improves even more. Uh, I, I, I do wonder if he's somebody that could rise from like a, a nice mid first round pick into a higher dra- uh, lottery pick. Is there any is there any hope of that happening in the tournament charts or is that something you think would have to happen in workouts? See, I kind of wish he goes back to school. He's such a raw player right now. Like the tools are there, but I get why I'd go pro in a weaker draft. But man, I feel like he's a guy I could use in a year of experience in college, though. Whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, if him and Tyrese Halliburton stay another year, that's that's a pretty dangerous team for Iowa State. Before we move on to talk about the NBA Western Conference playoff race, I just want to tell you that on Wednesday, 
the early version of our 2019 NBA draft guide went up. It has 15 of my scouting reports. And soon enough, we're going to be adding rankings from me, Danny, and John. We'll have commentary from Danny and John and Roger Sherman and a bunch of others like Mark Titus and perhaps Tate Frazier as well. So check that out at nbadraft.theringer.com. Anyway, the NBA is still playing games. We, we got a couple of weeks to go and entering Friday, we have four teams in the Western Conference all tied at 42 and 30. The Thunder, Spurs, Jazz, and Clippers uh, all at 42 and 30 entering the weekend. Danny, this race is going to be wild down the stretch. Uh, how do you see it shaking out? Dude, I, I don't even know. Like the, the Jazz lost yesterday and suddenly the Thunder who were at the eight moved up to the five. And so like, honestly, I, I'm just waiting for it to end. <laughs> like I, I am not good at math. I do not want to do any of these calculations. Uh, just, just give me the final slate and I'll be happy with it. I do think entering this weekend, it would not surprise me at all if we see the Spurs in that seven or eight spot because they have a tough schedule against the Rockets and the Celtics, whereas the Jazz got the Bulls on Saturday. The Clippers have the Cavs and the Knicks. Uh, it's I think San Antonio and OKC are going to have a lot harder of the weekend, which brings us to the NBA Watch of the Night. On Friday night, the Thunder are facing Toronto in the second game of a home-and-home. Home. That's on NBA TV at 7.30 Eastern. What's wrong with OKC, John? Losers of four straight games. Is there any reason for concern with them uh, down the final stretch? Well, you have the stats for Paul George here before the shoulder and after the shoulder injury. I mean, he was their best player all season, and they need the best version of Paul George. So it makes you wonder if maybe he should be resting some of these games. I'd rather have him 100% than have him you know, find this injury all to the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, with Paul George, before the shoulder injury, he was shooting 40% from three, 84% from the free throw line and 40% on mid-range shots. After the shoulder injury, he's shooting only 33% from three, 79% from the free throw line and 70 and 32% from mid-range. So the numbers are down. It's a small sample size, but I am a little bit concerned. I think this could be more than just a, a cold streak um, after just this ridiculous shooting display that he was putting on prior to that. There was one instance in a game, I believe last week, where he was running through a screen and got hit on that left shoulder. Uh, and he just basically stopped in place and you know held his shoulder. And there, you can tell something's up. He's not totally healthy out there. And I remember... A couple of years ago on JJ Reddick's podcast, either when he was us or, you know, maybe the pod he did before with the vertical, uh, I remember him talking to Kyle Corver and he said, like, anytime you have a minor injury, whether it's to your feet or you're to your upper body, it can impact your shot. And I wonder if that's what's happening right now with Paul George, where the numbers are just down across the board from every zone, every range. Right. That's concerning. They need them. Yeah. And the thing about it too with OKC is like they have so few guys who shoot. Like he's like one of their only guys who shoots the ball. So if he's not shooting well, there ain't much force spacing at all at that point. Yeah. And and with Paul George, I mean, the thing about the Thunder in the past, you know, three or so years is, oh, you know, everything goes through Westbrook. Every, you know, Westbrook is the reason why everything works. Well, this year, Paul George has taken up that mantle. And when he's kind of out of sorts, when he can't be, you know, an effective two-way player and just basically be their best player on both sides of the floor, then the system collapses. That That's kind of why their, defensive, their defense has kind of fallen off. And, and it's also part of playing one of the hardest records or one of the hardest remaining schedules um, in the league. But, you know, yeah, this, this Paul George thing is, is truly concerning heading into 
the most important stretch of the season for them. I'm looking forward to seeing on the other side if Toronto can make a push for that one seed down the final stretch of the regular season. If you want to watch every NBA game, subscribe to NBA League Pass on NBA.com or your local cable or satellite provider. Danny, you mentioned OKC's really difficult schedule down the stretch. For me, that's what I keep looking at for all of these teams, whether it's Golden State versus Denver up top. In the Western Conference, Denver has a much harder remaining schedule than Golden State. So I I think Golden State has a far better chance at grabbing that one seed, which means the team that falls into that eight seed probably doesn't have it probably isn't going to have that long of a playoff run. Uh, so every game down this f- final stretch is must watch. And with OKC, uh, their defense has not been elite like it was early in the season. Paul George has not been the MVP candidate since returning from the shoulder injury. And I'm not sure how long Russell Westbrook can sustain the hot shooting. And I do wonder uh, if they're falling, what is which team will be the one that rises? Is there any team that you've seen in recent weeks or months um, that you view as the team that's going to push up for that five seed? Well, KOC, I'm looking at the standings right now, and there's a possibility Houston falls to four. Can you imagine being in that 6-7 range, and you have Golden State and Houston on the other side of the bracket, <laughs> and those two teams I play in the second round have a bloodbath of a series, and then you're sitting in the like Western Conference Finals. Like That 2-3-6-7, that's the money range right now to get into that side of the bracket. And it's so close, who knows what's going to happen. But to me, it's like what Danny's saying about schedule. The team that gets into that bracket could have a lot of room to run regardless of their actual quality of their team. Are you guys buying San Antonio's improved defense over recent months? I mean, just just as recently as like a month ago, it was already back in shambles. So like, it, it, it is kind of hard to, hard to tell. But I mean, the thing about the Spurs is that you, after a while, you just, these players get familiar with each other and, and the help, the trust... Uh, is there and they're not they're not operating with any like elite defensive talent it's all just effort and and a lot of reading the situation and a lot of help defense so I mean if they can keep that up it's fine but it's just like they're not really working with a high ceiling there so here's my concern with San Antonio if you look at their schedule on that rodeo road trip their defense collapsed right because those are all road games and now their defense has been better because they're playing at home mostly over the last couple of weeks and if you break down their like their net ratings, really it's their bench that's winning games. So a team that's winning with its bench at home doesn't really strike me as the profile of a you know a serious playoff contender. We'll see though. I'm not been, I'm not a big believer in the Spurs this year. Maybe they'll be great. I don't know. Yeah, I think tonight's game against Houston for them will be will be pretty telling. They've won a lot of huge games in recent weeks. To be fair, beat OKC, Denver, Milwaukee, Portland, Golden State. Um, but those but are all Houston, home games. Yeah, yeah, and and then with Houston, it's on the road. Um, will be more of a playoff atmosphere with the road a- a- environment. And obviously, Houston is clicking on all cylinders as well. Uh, so I look forward to seeing if San Antonio can do what they've done in the past. That Rockets defense and and really just disable it. I do wonder how sustainable their defense is um, because they've been far different on the home versus road. That's all we have time for today, though, guys. Thanks, John. Thanks, Danny. Of course. Yeah, it's fun. And thank you for listening to The Ringer BA Show. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends if you like it. Be sure to check out TheRinger.com, too. Dan Devine wrote about the Sixers ascending, and we dropped the early version of our draft guide. As mentioned earlier, John also wrote about Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett. Thanks again. Peace out. Have a good weekend.